that you would speak to our hearts now, open up our minds and our souls to receive the truth that you want to say to us and be glorified in our midst. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So tonight, if you would, uh, before we dive into the book of Mark, flip over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And Hebrews chapter 12, and the author having now covered the explanation of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law, how he completes the law and, and gives us the new covenant of approaching God through faith in Jesus Christ, and then giving us examples of how that correlates to the Old Testament law and, and the examples of the lives lived in the Old Testament, and really one of the most just theologically profound books, I think, in, in the scriptures. Having done all of that, in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And so the author says, okay, understanding everything we know now about who Jesus Christ is and everything about what he's done and how he's offered righteousness to us and all those things, here's what let's do. Let's lay aside the sins and the weights in our life that entangle us or encumber us and let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. And it's a, it's a fantastic verse. It's an incredible encouragement. I love it uh, for so many reasons, but you know, there's that assurance that Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher. He's going to do the work. He's going to bring us to completion. There's also the exhortation to us to lay aside the things that will trip us up in our life and to fix our eyes on Christ. And so if we want to be faithful in life, if we want to run our race well, we're only going to do that if we can fix our eyes on Christ. And so where we're at I want us to just sort of keep that in the back of our minds as we're going through the Gospels uh, these next couple weeks because what we're doing is not just reliving, uh, you know, Jewish history. We're not looking at a, at a narrative, although we are. It's much more than that. It is historical fact. It is historical occurrences, and we're watching a real historical person named Jesus who lived in the nation of Israel uh, live out his life, but we're also fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ as our model, as our example. And so when we look to the Gospels, we don't just look for, okay, here's a nice story about Jesus. We look for, oh, here's how Jesus Christ lived his life. And using that as a model, we now know how we are called to live our lives. And so that's important for us to just keep in mind. So tonight, we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we said last week that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known collectively as the synoptic gospels, which is just an overly fancy word that means seen together. It means that they're very similar in the way they're written and the things they cover. And so if you read one of them, that's great. If you read the next one, that's great. You read the third one, that's great. But if you read them all together, you're going to get just uh, a really well-rounded picture of who Jesus Christ is. The Gospel of John was written much later, uh, towards the end of John's life, probably somewhere around 80, 85 AD, and uh, it's known as the fourth gospel, which kind of, you know, makes sense. It's number four. So, uh, and in that, John just wanted to, before he died, 
write down some more thoughts about that he wanted the church to remember, things that he wanted to be preserved uh, in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so John has a little bit of just some different emphasis and things that he covers, but he's not giving us a different gospel. He's just giving us a, a more nuanced view. But as we're looking here, Mark is the second of the synoptic gospels. Mark is the shortest of the gospels. It's 16 chapters. And it is the most high-speed, intense narrative summary of the life of Christ that we have. And Mark, I'm sure if Mark taught through the Bible on Wednesday nights, he would have taught in overview fashion. He moves fast. He does not spend a lot of time getting bogged down in details. He goes. Because he is writing this book to give an overview of who Jesus Christ is. And Mark, um, some commentators say that Mark was probably written as sort of the introduction to Jesus. Like, if you're new to understanding Christianity, or if you just feel like, you know, people are referencing things that I'm not really picking up on, I want to get kind of a good foundation. Well, the book of Mark is a phenomenal place to start. If you don't have a ton of experience in the Old Testament, Matthew can sometimes be a little bit confusing, just because he's elaborating on prophecies that have been fulfilled. And, um, you know, Luke is just very thorough, and sometimes he can feel a little bit methodical, uh, which is good, but sometimes it's a little bit methodical. And Mark is just giving it to us, right? Mark uses the word immediately, I think 46 times in, in 16 chapters. So Jesus did this, and then immediately after that, he did this. And then immediately after that, he did this. And then immediately after that, this happened. And he's just given us this high-speed narrative. So if you feel like you need a comprehensive overview of who Jesus Christ is, the book of Mark is a phenomenal place to start. It was probably, uh, church history would say that it's written down by Mark, probably narrated to him by Peter. It's Peter's uh, eyewitness account of what happened. And so uh, we get it, we can, as people pick that apart, uh, really you can sort of see some of that, some of the perspective of someone who was very close to Jesus and had some of those moments with him that somebody like Peter would have had. Um, but what I want us to do tonight, you know, since, since Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar, and we want to take a little bit of time to slow down as we can, tonight I want us to keep in mind that verse from Hebrews. And so if we're looking at an understanding that Christianity is totally centralized around Jesus Christ, then we should have a desire to live our lives like Jesus Christ and like he would have us live our lives. And so the best way to do that is to follow his example. And so Mark gives us a great example of the life of Christ, and with that, there's a ton of application for us for how we can live our lives. And so Mark, like we said, he wastes no time. He jumps in, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. Here's, here we go. Uh, just like it's written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark says, okay, we're going to tell you the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ. So there's a prophecy about a messenger coming before Christ. John came. He's the fulfillment. And then we're just going to go starting, we'll just kick down to verse 7. John comes preaching this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. and He's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And he gives him a very important message in verse 7. He was preaching, that's he, John, and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, 
and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, John says, hey, I'm baptizing you as a symbol of your desire to be cleansed by the Lord. But I am not your Savior. I am not the one who's going to take away your sins. I'm preparing the way for him. I'm coming to exhort you to be ready for him, to get your hearts in order, get your lives in order, because he's coming. And I'm going to baptize you with water as a symbol of the relationship you want to have with him. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit as the proof of the relationship that you're going to get to have with him. And so in verse 8, uh, verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus begins his ministry on earth by being baptized. And interestingly, he's baptized in the water, but then he's, the spirit of God descends upon him. So in a very real sense, he's baptized in water and he's baptized with the Holy Spirit. And those should be defining points of our lives. Uh, you know, yes, you do not have to get baptized in water in order to be a Christian. Uh, the thief on the cross was not baptized with water. He still went to heaven. But getting baptized with water is a command from Scripture. So if you have the opportunity, it's, it's not a salvation issue, it's an obedience issue. If you haven't been baptized with water, get baptized with water. But John said the water is a symbol of what's coming. The Holy Spirit is the proof the Holy Spirit is the real thing. So get baptized with water by all means, but what do you need to do after that? You need to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. Is your life marked by a fullness of the power of God living in you? And in the book of Acts, we'll get there in a few weeks, uh, it's either one of the disciples, I forget which one, I won't make it up, I forget which one, goes to a group of believers and he says, have you guys been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they say, we haven't even heard if there's a Holy Spirit. He's like, these guys are saved, but there's something, eh, not, there's something just kind of missing in their lives. Something's lacking. And, uh, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. And so we get baptized with water as a symbol of the relationship we want to have. But then you need to get baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. You need to get filled with the power of God to live out the devotion that you want to have. And Jesus Bear in mind, Jesus is our model and our example. Jesus is God and man. He is the God-man, and, and we cannot, in our human brains, comprehend what that is. He's 100% God, and he's 100% man. I don't know how that works, but he is. But he's fully God. And God, starting his ministry on earth, says, I'm going to get baptized with water and with the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus is our example, how much more so do we need to get baptized with the power of God? So Jesus gets baptized. If you want to st start ministering for the Lord, if you want to be an effective minister for the Lord, you need to get baptized with the power of God. In chapter 1, verse 35. Uh, well, so then just the quick synopsis before verse 35. So then he starts calling, Jesus gets baptized he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He comes out and then he starts calling his disciples to him. And he, he chooses 12 guys to come follow him specifically. Other people would follow him. We're told that at different times there's 70, there's 120. Uh, so there's a, a good number of people who followed him around wherever he went. But he had 12 disciples specifically who he really spent time pouring into. 
And so he calls these 12 men, and then uh, they, they're going around, he's teaching them, he's healing people, and so they wind up coming into um, the hometown of Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he starts healing people. And it turns into this big deal, and it says, when evening came, in verse 32, chapter 1, after the sun had set, they were, began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he wasn't permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So he's doing all kinds of miracles. The whole city came to their door. The whole city wants to hear Jesus teach. They want to watch the power of God. That's called an opportunity. Right? There's this opportunity. Jesus has a chance right here to do something huge, to start a cool church and, and to be able to pinpoint when a movement started and the address that it started out. And he could build a plaque and a monument and a memorial. And we could say, you know, this is when the power of God showed up in Capernaum in whatever year, whatever time. And verse 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. So there's this, all this energy. I mean, the whole town comes to your house. And you're healing everybody. And you're casting out demons. And it's exciting, right? Well, what, it's time to form a committee. And we get a building team together. And we're going we're gonna to capitalize on this momentum. What's the next thing Jesus does? He gets up early by himself. He goes off where there's nobody. And he prays. Jesus takes the time. The cool stuff is great. It's, it, it's exciting when we get to watch the Lord do cool stuff. But Jesus takes the time right in the midst of that to say, I am going to meet with my Father. I'm going to meet with the Lord. I'm going to get away from the noise, even the good noise. And I'm going to meet with the Lord privately. And Simon, uh, who would later get named Peter, and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. Hey, Jesus, we've got this whole, you know, we've got this groove happening. Verse 38, and he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus was like the worst evangelist ever by modern standards. Jesus has this opportunity. He's got excitement. He's got power. He's got signs. And he goes off to pray and then says, you know what? No. We're going to go spread the gospel to other towns. We're going to... We're going to go carry this message somewhere else. We're not going to park here. And how does he determine that that's the right thing to do? He gets alone with the Lord. And, and how does that work? How does God go pray to God? I don't know. But if Jesus, as the God-man, felt the need in the midst of incredible spiritual movement and power to get along with the Lord and have a private time of devotion, prayer, and fellowship with the Lord, how much more do we need that? All right? That's why... Church is wonderful. Church is important. Church is critical to your health as a believer. But so is what's happening in your own life privately. And if you're not getting along with the Lord in times to, to really get in His Word, to talk to Him, to pray to Him, uh, then you are going to not be prepared to really hear the will of the Lord. You're going to be just you're you're not going to be in tune with the frequency of God, and and you know the Bible describes the moving of the Lord as a still small voice, and if your life is filled with chaos and noise, it is really hard to hear a still small voice, right? We live in a family where there is always noise. Uh, there are 27 simultaneous conversations going on 
at any given time. If you want to get a, like a coherent thought in, you either spit it out really fast or you go off somewhere by yourself and kind of perfect what you're going to say. You articulate it. Right? You, you, you have to get by yourself with the Lord if you want to really know what the Lord is trying to say to you. You've got to balance it with wise counsel. Balance it with the Word of God. Balance it with fellowship at church. But you have got to be having time alone with the Lord. Because we're looking at Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. So he started the example for us, and he's fully capable of finishing it for us. And he will finish it, but we're called to run. We're called to look. So we're looking at his example and saying, what did he do? How did he minister? This is how Jesus Christ ministered. He got alone with the Lord to seek the will of God. In chapter 2, verse 1, when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. So he leaves, and then he winds up coming back to this place. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out. So what happens here? Jesus is teaching and he gets a service disruption. The ushers weren't all over it. Uh, So somebody drops a paralytic through the roof in the hopes that Jesus is going to heal this guy. And Jesus looks at this guy who can't walk. He looks at the faith of these four friends who say, we are going to bring you to Jesus even if we have to get awkwardly disruptive because you need an encounter with Jesus. Jesus looks at this guy, he looks at his four friends and he says, dude, your sins are forgiven. Now those guys did not bring their friend there to get his sins forgiven. They brought him there because he couldn't walk and Jesus is this healer guy who can make people walk. And Jesus looks at the guy who can't walk and says, let's fix the problem. Your sins are forgiven. Was that the guy's problem? What's the answer? Yes, it was. Did he think it was his problem? No. Did his four friends think it was his problem? No. What do they think his problem is? He can't walk. Right? It's so obvious. And yet Jesus is in tune with the will of God. So what does he see? He sees a big picture. Right? Sometimes we can get really tied up, uh, especially our current world, and frankly, American Christianity is getting really confused right now about like social Christianity and how do we be Christians and have a desire to push for social good at the same time and, and what should be our role in human aid and you know, foreign help and all this stuff. Those things are important. But those are not the main issue. What is the main issue? It is that people are sinners who need to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. They need to have their sins forgiven. So yes, we should care about feeding the hungry and, and giving shelter to the homeless, whether that's here in Madison or that's somewhere in Africa or anywhere else around the world. But what do we care about most? We care about the souls and the eternity of people. And so Jesus takes time out from what other people think is important 
because he's in tune with the will of God to say, let's address what really matters. Jesus is in tune. And so if we are going to fix our eyes on Jesus and we're going to follow his example, then we need to, sure, if there's a tangible need in front of you that you can meet, go for it. But don't ever get so distracted by what feels like the immediate need that we miss the real need. You can spend your entire life making this world a more comfortable place to go to hell from. That is not our goal. Our goal is to invite people into the kingdom of God. And if poor people come into the kingdom of God, that's wonderful. If rich people come into the kingdom of God, that's wonderful too. If we distribute the wealth so that everyone's wealthy, which doesn't work, but if we distribute the wealth so that everyone's wealthy and they all go to hell, what happens? They all go end up in hell, right? So yes, earthly justice matters, but we are looking at things from an eternal perspective if we're going to follow the model of Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, and we're just going to basically just kind of hit a lot of these points as we're going through Mark. So chapter 6, verse 33. This is a very famous story. This is the miracle of Jesus other than the resurrection. It's the only one that's included in all four of the Gospels. So, you know, I can't imagine having been an eyewitness to all the miracles of Jesus Christ. But this one specifically stood out in the minds of the disciples so much that every single one of them as they're getting ready to write the gospel, says, we cannot forget this one. We've got to put this in. So the people, verse 33 of chapter 6, the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Jesus is going across the lake and so the people run around because they don't have enough boats and meet him there as he's getting off shore. When Jesus went ashore, verse 34, he saw a large crowd And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So he teaches the people. And the disciples come and say, It's getting late. There's no food around. Why don't you send these guys home? And so they can go get something to eat, and then also we can eat. But they can get something to eat. Sure, yeah, that's, that's what we'll say. And so, verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? A denarii was like one day's wage. So, wages are all over the place. But let's say $100 a day. Should we go spend $20,000 on food and, and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. So what's happening here? Okay. Uh, there's this, there's a ton of people coming around. Jesus is dealing with their spiritual needs. But there's a growing physical need, which is that they're all hungry. And so he doesn't ignore that reality. But he's tending to the more important things first. So the disciples come and say, hey, it's getting late. There's not enough food for everybody here. Can we just kind of... Close things down for the night. And Jesus says, tell you, I got a better idea. Why don't you feed them? You give them something to eat. Now they're in the middle of nowhere. And Jesus says, go give them something to eat. And they say, what do you want us to do? Go spend 20 grand on food? Which is probably not the smartest thing to say to God, right? Don't, if you're snarky with God, it just always comes back to bite you. So I wouldn't advise it. But uh, he says, what have you got? How many loaves do you have? And they go check, and they say, we've got five loaves and two fish. That's not like five loaves of white bread. That's like five, uh, think like a hamburger bun. Okay? Five buns and two fish. These are not like, you know, smallmouth bass. These are little guys. 
so five hamburger buns and, and two sardines. Okay, uh, which, which is equivalent to, like, why do you even bother telling Jesus that that's what you have, right? What are you going to do with five loaves and two stinking fish? You're not going to do anything. That's like, that's stupid. Why would you bother telling the Lord, we've got, you know, hey, we've got 15,000 people out here. How much food do we have? And it's just simpler to say we don't have any, right? Oh, we got like a collective thousand calories to split between all these people. So he commanded them, verse 39, to all sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces, and also of the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. So assuming there were women and children there, there's, there's probably fifteen, fifteen to what, twenty-five thousand people? That's a lot of people. So what does Jesus do? He calls the disciples to do something that they can't do. They say, there is a need here. They recognize the need, you know, credit to them. There's a need here, and our best solution is let's just get rid of people. That would probably at least make the need easier, okay? We recognize the need. That's, we get points for that. Just get rid of them. That'll make things simpler. Jesus says, I have a better idea. Why don't you feed these people? Now, they are completely unequipped to feed these people. There's Jesus and his 12 disciples. There's 13 guys in his group, and they've got five loaves and two fish to go 13 ways, as it is. So they're already uh, either very tight on the budget or very poor at their planning. Uh, so, but he calls them to something they can't do at all. And then what's he do? He makes them aware of, he makes it really clear to them. How much do you have? Like, just, just double check, right? Just make sure you don't have, like, an extra semi-load of bread sitting around somewhere. Okay, you only got five loaves and two fish. Great. So, he reminds them of how much they have, which is really how much they don't have. And then, they're sitting around thinking, okay, he wants us to feed these people. What, so what? What are we going to do? He says, why don't you have the people sit down? Okay. Would you guys all mind sitting down? Thank you. Okay, we sit down. And he looks back at Jesus. Okay, now what? He goes, well, hand me, the, hand me the bread and the fish. He gives thanks for it, and then he starts passing it out. And it says that basically they keep taking it to the crowds, coming back. He gives them a little more. They take it back. It does not say that Jesus, you know, sat there and shuffled it and, you know, crumbled it, whatever, until he got his whole mountain and then said, everybody, come. The disciples took a handful out at a time and passed it out. So what'd they do? Jesus gave them what they needed for the, whatever, three or four people in front of them. They handed it out. And then they went back to Jesus and got a refill and went out. And then they went back. These guys probably worked their tail ends off, right? 13 people feeding 15,000 people. It's going to be a lot of work. But what are they doing? They are refilling at wherever Jesus is at until Everybody's satisfied. In the ancient world, uh, especially in Israel, everyone was poor. And not like poor in the way we think of it. The idea of being satisfied was a foreign concept. The idea of eating till you were full was non-existent. And so the Gospels make this point 
These people, Jesus didn't just give them all a bite. He gave them all a meal. They were all satisfied. Now, did it matter how much the disciples had? It didn't matter if they had one loaf and one fish. It didn't matter if they had a thousand loaves and a thousand fish. What do they have? Not enough. Right? But what Jesus does is he calls them to something. He lets them be aware of their own inadequacy. And then he starts to give them these hints. Hey, why don't you just tell me what you've got. Have people sit down. Let's pray for the food. And he starts passing it out. Right? What's he do? He calls them. He equips them. And then he works through them. And who gets the credit? He does. So if God calls you to something that you can't do, that probably means it's something that he wants you to do. Because it's the kind of thing that when it gets done, you and everybody else will say, huh, that wasn't me. That wasn't my genius or my money or my intellectual capacities. That was obviously the work of the Lord. So he calls them something they can't do. It equips them and they do it. These guys... To their credit, the disciples get a bad rap because they are all kind of clueless. But when Jesus tells them what to do here, they do it. They do the work of God and they get to watch Jesus provide for them so that they can do the work that he's calling them to. Right? That's, that's just, it's an incredible, incredible passage where we get to watch that happening in their lives and we get to live out the same thing in our lives. In chapter 9... Uh, we just got a couple more of these, and so and then we'll be wrapped up for the night. In chapter 9, from there, chapter 9, verse 30, that would be more helpful. In chapter 9, verse 30, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they didn't understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So this is later on in Jesus' ministry. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He's getting ready to be killed and then rise from the dead. And so he's giving his disciples a heads up. He says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. But they didn't understand what he was saying. Now, what's so hard to understand about the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men they're going to kill him, and after they kill him, he's going to rise from the dead. That's really very straightforward, linear logic, like A, B, C, right? Nice, small thoughts. What's hard to understand about that? Well, Mark does us uh, a, a huge favor. Uh, every time in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus foretells his death and his resurrection, it gets followed up by something that sounds like this. Verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Every time Mark tells us about Jesus giving the disciples a heads up about his death and resurrection, he follows it by showing us the disciples arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Which one of them is like the most awesomest, right? Like, because sure, whatever, Jesus is number one, but really, we don't care about that. We care about who's number two because there's 12 of us plus Jesus. So sure, we'll say Jesus is number one, but really, who's like in charge? Who's going to be the Pope, right? Uh, and so Jesus is foretelling his death and his resurrection and they can't understand it. Why can't they understand it? Because they're distracted, you are not going to be able to hear the voice of the Lord if you are busy planning your own self-promotion. 
And these guys are so caught off guard when Jesus dies. They're devastated. And nobody says, hey, let's sit tight for three days because he said he'll rise from the dead. Why? Because they were too distracted with their own self-promotion to understand what Jesus was actually saying. He's telling them something. He's giving them straightforward instruction. And they're too busy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Death, resurrection, something or other. Uh, But what's my job going to be when I'm in charge? What am I going to do to these other 11 losers once I'm in charge, right? They miss the point completely. And so Jesus is going to address it. Verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12 and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. Jesus says, okay, guys, you know, okay, losers, uh, let's, let's talk about who's the greatest in the kingdom. If, if you guys don't want to talk about the fact that I'm getting ready to die for your sins and rise from the dead, let's talk about being great in the kingdom of God. So what's he say? If you want to be first, you need to be last of all and the servant of all. And Jesus is, is not interested in creating a kingdom that works according to earthly rules. Right? According to earthly rules, how does it work? The richest people, the strongest people, and the prettiest people, and the smartest people are always at the top. Right? If you have one of those four, you can always move your way up. If you have four of those four, you're on top. And so Jesus says, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. The servant is the greatest of all. Now, back that up. Who's the greatest example we've ever had in all of history for how to live our life? Jesus Christ. Who's the greatest servant of all time? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not just the God-man. He's the king-servant. And he's both of those at the same time. I have no idea how that works. Right? But all of us, probably, have at some point in time had to do something for somebody. Right? You've had that moment where you have to do something for somebody, either because it's your parents and they're bigger than you, or it's your siblings and it's just not worth the hassle, or they're meaner than you, or they're more persistent than you. Uh, You know, sometimes wars are won just by persistence, uh, right? But sometimes you do something just because you have to, or just because it will make things quiet, or just because it will shut somebody up, right? And and, and what's that? You're serving them. You're being a servant. They're treating you like a servant, right? But what are you doing? Are you serving them? No, not really. What are you doing? You're stroking your own ego. And just reminding yourself how awesome you are and how much of a jerk they are and how much they don't appreciate all that you do around here, right? And boy, one of these days, you're really going to show them who's, who's nice, right? <laughs> You'll show them who's the best. Uh, that's how we define servanthood. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not serving anybody because he has to, right? There are plenty of times you do something for somebody because they're the boss, we pay taxes, we drive either the speed limit or somewhere close to it, uh, we don't rob banks, we do all these kinds of things because, why? Because there's somebody with more power than us who has the ability to enforce it upon us, right? Why does Jesus serve his disciples? It's not because they're better than he is. It's not because they're smarter than he is or they have more power, it's because he loves them more. Jesus is demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God by demonstrating the love of God through service. He doesn't demonstrate the love of God by charismatic speaking or 
dynamic worship sets or, you know, the cool lights and smoke and mirrors and all this. No, how's he demonstrated? By serving. Not by serving because he has to, by serving because he chooses to. By submitting himself to authority for the sake of demonstrating the love of God for sinful humanity. And so if we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, you are not going to run your race well if you are interested in promoting yourself because you will deafen yourself to the voice of God. Jesus is trying to teach these guys about his death and resurrection and they are completely oblivious. Why? Because they have blocked out the importance of what Jesus is trying to say and they've replaced it with what they think is important. And what do they think is important? Themselves. If you elevate yourself, uh, you are going to lose your ability to understand what God is trying to do in your life. And so if we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the author and the finisher, we're going to have to walk in service, walk in love. Love that gives. And we've got to understand what is love because we use love all the time in our culture, right? I love pizza. I love my wife. Is that the same thing? Because I hope it isn't. That's really awkward if it is, right? But what do we often mean when we talk about love? We talk about, boy, I just love the feeling that it gives me, right? I love what that food does for me. I love what that person does for me. That is not how God defines love. God says, I love to give of myself to that person. So I love that person. Love is an outgoing verb for the Lord. And if we're going to serve the Lord effectively, if we're going to serve the Lord faithfully, if we're going to look unto Jesus, then we need to define, let our lives be marked by that kind of a love. That's a supernatural love. That's a love that does not work according to any of the rules of this world. So how does that work? Only by supernatural power. It only works if we go back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and say, okay, I have got to be filled with the power of God because I am not interested in operating my life according to the power or the schemes of men. I'm interested in living my life according to the power of God. That's what we're looking at in the example of Mark, that Mark gives us in the example of Jesus Christ. And then we see the death and the resurrection of Christ. And in chapter 16, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples and he gives them a final benediction, which is much like Matthew's. He says to them in chapter 16, verse 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now, just like Jesus saying, I'm going to die and rise again, this one is pretty straightforward. And, and most people, including myself, uh, if we don't carry it out, it's not because we don't understand it, it's because we wuss out. Right? It's because, well, yeah, I would go and tell all the world, but that could just be just a tad socially awkward, right? I mean, it's just a little bit awkward to talk to somebody about something eternal when all you're trying to do is get your pack of animal crackers in the checkout and just get out of there, right? Like, how do you connect animal crackers to eternity? Because there's nothing eternal about animal crackers, right? What do you, what do we, we like, we can, we, whatever you want, we qualify everything because we're so concerned about what our own self-image our own self-promotion or glorification or do I actually look cool enough and hip enough? And, and now, you know, we, we've sped it up in our culture so you can do self-checkout. You don't have to talk to a single person. But you do have to look at yourself in the camera that's filming you, right? So wink at the camera. But we can just like totally ignore the whole world. We can just do our own little thing, our own little bubble. But what did Jesus call us to? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. You preach the good news everybody. 
What's the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And you and I and every other person we're going to interface with is a sinner. And the good news is that Jesus came to earth to demonstrate an example of a life that we can live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not because we'll be perfect, but because we can be perfected. Jesus demonstrates a life that's lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us in the Gospel of John, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to send you the same power. And you're going to have the same power that's in me. Jesus does his whole ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit and the whole blend of however the Trinity works that none of us fully understand. But Jesus accomplishes his ministry on earth the way it's supposed to be done in submission to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are called to minister on earth. We're called in Matthew. We're called in Mark to go into all the world and, and preach the gospel and to make disciples. And sometimes that's more evangelistic than others. Sometimes that's more teaching than others. There are, you know, I understand that there are uh, sort of different methods and modes of, of doing this. But we're called and we're given an example. And then we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the finisher. So if you feel like you're not finished yet, it's because you're not finished yet. Because he is finishing you, but he's going to do it by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's, and, and you, on your end, have the responsibility to walk in humility to walk in servanthood, to walk with that awareness of, I can't do this. I'm a, you know, whatever. I'm an introvert. That's like the lamest Christian excuse ever, but it's one that everybody uses, including myself. So I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody other than myself, right? I'm an introvert. I can't tell something about Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, I'm shy. Well, get over it, right? Live life by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. That's what we're called to. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. And just like the feeding of the 5,000, it's not about what you're capable of or what I'm capable of. It's not about what are your strengths or, you know, can you play to the best version of yourself. No, it's about you can't do anything. It's about every single one of us is a loser. But by the power of God, God can do incredible things. And he just happens to enjoy using losers. It's kind of a specialty. So, guess what? You're called. Get yourself equipped. Walk in humility. Walk in service. And go preach the gospel. And watch what the Lord can do. The Lord does not tell you. There's a, there's a guy who says, you know, God doesn't call us to feed the 5,000. He calls us to give them our loaves and our fish. And he'll take care of it from there. So walk in obedience. And see what the Lord wants to do. And it will be an exciting ride. Next week, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. It's the third of the Synoptic Gospels. The week after that, I'm going to be out of town, so Dad's going to do something, and then we'll be back to John. All right? So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would, that it would change us, that we wouldn't walk out of here uh, with just uh, an acknowledgement that, yeah, that was great, that we would uh, recognize that you have set an example that you've called us to follow. And God, we are completely incapable on our own, but we do believe in your strength. And so we ask you to strengthen us, to embolden us, to empower us, to use us in the world where it's, it's, it's crazy. So God, as we're leaving here and we're heading out into the mission field that you've called us to, I pray that you would work through us. Use us for your kingdom and your glory. We thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the redemption that he's offered each and every one of us. And we pray that you would... Help us to live uh, 
just with a, with a deepening awareness of all that that entails. So have your way with us, and it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior, that we pray. Amen.